Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. My name is Richard Gold. I live in London in the UK. The field I work in is helping teams to make the most of each other. I design and facilitate workshops across strategy, team development, innovation, project troubleshooting, among other things, uh, using Lego serious play and other playful methods. I also train managers on how to design and run meetings using a set of playful principles which I've developed so they can run meetings which are more productive, inventive and engaging by making the most of everyone in the room, whether that's virtual or uh, physical. Uh, my most fantastic job or work experience was and, and probably still is uh, watching the mini transformations that happen in workshops that I run um, those moments when an individual or group experiences a moment of clarity and insight that profoundly affects them as a facilitator witnessing those moments uh, quite often enabled by the Lego serious play method and the psychological safety that it engenders is the best part of the job uh, the topic I can talk about for hours probably boringly uh, is why we need to get better at running meetings because <laughs> uh, most people don't know how to design and run meetings they become a huge waste of resource and uh, are quite often seen as the opposite of work rather than places you do work and i think meetings should be where the magic happens mm. uh, where teams become more than the sum of their parts mm -hmm. doing things they can only do together and i think meeting design and facilitation is one of the most important and least trained skills for modern leaders work and play work and play sounds like two different spheres if you will that would never commingle how and why does it matter so work and play aren't the opposite of each other uh, the opposite of work is leisure the opposite of play um, as other people have said before me is depression there is no reason why we can't be playful uh, when we are working. In fact, uh, many people think that there can be no collaboration without some kind of playfulness, uh, because if we're not in a uh, state of mind where we can be playful, it's very hard to do anything new. Does this get down to neuroscience? Is this just the left and right hemispheres? Is it that simple? Is it just you open up different avenues of thinking or while you're playing or what what happens? It, it gets uh, very quickly to uh, to neuroscience um it's such a a broad topic so mm. when we think about any kind of situation where there is any kind of threat our brain is constantly looking out for anything that could be a threat to us so in a meeting or in any kind of collaboration, our brain, whether we know it or not, is looking looking for that. Even if we are really uh, excited about something that's going to happen, our brain is subconsciously looking out for the things that could derail that. And so what happens in that kind of situation is parts of the brain shut down so that we don't say anything that will have us criticized or ridiculed, uh, which might lead us to being ejected from the tribe, left on the plane and eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, because our brain is not. Uh, evolved to the point where we understand the difference between a social threat and a, and a mortal threat. That caution, that internal caution that switches on and off that may be conscious or not, absolutely hinders really authentic communication. Totally, totally. And so a playful okay. mindset, and I think it's really important when, when people talk about play and 
playfulness in in this context what i mean by play is not having a football table in the office uh, it's about uh, creating the, the environment and the conditions for a positive exploratory mindset which is only possible when, when you feel safe when you feel belonging where you feel the absence of fear that's what allows us to to play so what that has in common with with kids is so kids when they play there's a um, Maria Montessori who was one of the leading educators of the 20th century had a phrase that that uh, play is the work of the child mm. because what children are that's what they do to mm. uh, to learn for adults we've quite often forgotten how to do that playfulness and i i believe that uh, work when it's done right should feel like play and in fact collaborative work kind of has to feel well, like play because you have to feel safe to explore sure the the safety is the the key ingredient to any of that right so but but i want to go back to what you're saying with the play is there a common misconception that sports is play because i want to say that as a child you don't learn competition straight away play is just play but then you export that concept to competition or sports or anything that's competitive to where there's a loser if you're not a winner you're a loser you don't feel good playing if you're a loser so there's got to be a different level of what play is or at least the outcome yeah i think play and playfulness and sport and winning and losing uh, are, are not are not the same thing one of the interesting trends in the, the kind of literature around play is people talk about the idea of gamification and so gamification so who's the winner who's the loser um, and the moment you become competitive i think you're not playful uh, within a team, you may be playful. You may be working playfully to figure out how to, to beat the opposition. But when you're working against somebody else, you know, creating league tables in the office, that may well be successful in driving sales, for example. It won't drive collaborative, innovative, uh, team development things where you're using the, the resources of, of, of the whole team, not just individuals fighting against each other. I think you're spot on with that concept because I think, to me, the idea of having the the team orientation to where you're competing that holds the cards at that point because if you want to be a winner you sure don't want to share your you know whatever's working for you because now oh geez everybody will do it so it is an anti-climate of collaborative sharing yeah and, it, and that competitiveness goes even deeper than that so google did a huge piece of research on the uh, what makes for a successful team they noticed that in their teams, they, they quite nicely called them their A teams and their B teams. So the A teams were packed full of people on seven-figure salaries with you know huge expertise, the, the kind of doyens of their field, pulled together to, to solve really big problems and smaller problems within the organization. Uh, the B teams were equally great people, also very well qualified, uh, but not picked to be on the team because of their expertise. B teams always be A teams is what they found really interesting so the question they then asked themselves a project's called project aristotle was why does that happen and what makes a successful team versus a non-successful team and what they discovered was that if you've got a lot of really expert people who are there for their expertise it's not that great for them if somebody else comes up with the best idea they've also got a huge amount of information which and knowledge which they're invested in so they're much less likely to sit down as a group and go, we don't know what we're doing. Let's figure this out mm. together. And the thing that, 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 that actually they found that, that sat at the heart of allowing that to happen was psychological safety. Mm. That was the, the one thing that, that drove whether 
uh, and indicated whether a team was going to be successful or not successful. Um, and it's that doing it together, not against yeah. each other. I'm assuming that this is something that is a key ingredient to the what you practice with the Legos. Could you tell us a little bit more how you found the Lego theory or the Lego game? I guess it's not gamification at that point, but the Lego practice. Yeah, so a little bit about my background. I was originally a, a media trade press journalist, magazine editor, editing a business magazine, realized I knew nothing about business. Uh, so I went, didn't, <laughs> I went and did an MBA because I thought it'd be good to learn about business. Didn't, still didn't know much about business at the end of that. <laughs> I got into a whole bunch of different consulting roles as a strategy consultant, as an international kind of corporate branding consultant, doing a bunch of social action campaign activities, and then a lot of digital transformation. So really broad range of different places, all kinds of different needs for methodologies and workshops and working together. And the thing I quite, was quite uncomfortable about after some years of doing this was that it felt like what made the difference on a successful project rather than a not successful project was had less to do with me, less to do with the methodology that I was bringing from whichever consultancy I was working in, and more to do with the team of people I was working with at the client, how they kind of talk to each other, how they behave with each other, and most importantly, how they listen to each other. And I was, I was kind of struggling with that. And I, it's oh, seven years ago now, uh, I was working in a digital transformation company and I got sent actually a little bit grumpily, I have to admit, on a Lego serious play certification program. That was my first kind of uh, way of my first interaction with it. And I was basically sent on it because our chief executive likes Lego. It was as simple as that. And I was like, if you wanted me to play and play with Lego, I'll go and play with Lego. <laughs> and, and it was one of those kind of cathartic transformational moments of like within, within 10 minutes, it was like, wow, this is, this is different. And I, I realized that the kind of the playfulness within the, what they referred to as playfulness, but the way that the method worked was a fantastic way of bringing out kind of next level thinking and getting people to, there's a lovely phrase which we quite often hear, which is like people say, I knew that, but I didn't know I knew it. Or as a team, we knew what we had to do, but yeah. we just couldn't articulate it. And the, the method and The is tool set is the Lego, right? I mean, that's the external stimulus. And so what you're doing is you're reframing the how and the why of team practice. I mean, this is ideally you're talking with folks in a team orientation, I would presume, either staff or a uh, section of an organization that wants to come to either make their soft skills a little better or give them a practice of thinking differently. Typically, it's not or about training. Actually, typically, it's about solving problems. It's a, we think about it as a thinking, communication and problem solving tool. The kinds of areas that I've used it on, and yes, team development is one area, but it's about developing the team as a team. So the content of what's it like to be part of the team? What's the team life? What can each person bring to the team? What can they bring more of to the team? How is it all linked together? And and importantly, how do we as a team operate? How do we make decisions and, and understanding the, the principles of how we work so that we can work directionally? I mean, actually, shall I tell you a little bit about how it works? Because I think Please. it's... <laughs> Yeah. It's quite um, ethereal uh, as, a, as a concept. It's Lego, it's play, but what, what, what actually is it? Yeah. The way it works is that there's a kind of operating system which has the playfulness really baked into it. So what happens is uh, for each part of a workshop, I'll ask a question, uh, which is kind of constructed to allow people to, to be able easily to answer it, but also to, to go beyond their comfort zone and explore. So creating a kind of level of safety within the, the workshop is really important and there's kind of 
tools for doing that. But so, so there's a question that's asked, then everybody has time to build their own model. So everybody individually builds their own model, has time to think in their own style, their own culture, in an international group, in their own language, and to really think about what their, their answer to that problem is. And it's done through metaphor. So I won't ask somebody to you know, build a car. Uh, but I might ask somebody to build your aspiration for this team or what can this company or this project bring to the world? So kind of, it's sort of clear, but sort of unclear so people can explore. So people will build individually. And so they've had that time to think. Right. Then everybody would go around the table. Everybody explains their own answer through their model and questions are always to the model rather than to the person. And then you have a discussion. So there's four, four steps of a question, time to think and build Everybody tells their story, then you have a discussion. So you don't get the anchoring that you normally get in the of most conversations of the first person speaks, uh, dominate uh, or, or starts the conversation. So then if you're, you're listening to that and you're also thinking about what you're going to say, and it's very, very hard to get everybody's ideas on the table. Also, people who are introverts no longer uh, feel like they can't contribute because actually there is not only a, an opportunity, there's also an expectation of, of contribution uh, and it's safe and they're mm -hmm. contributing through their model rather than looking eye to eye with, with other people. You've got all these individuals creating something, um, a, a physical model out of Legos that are provided and it's up to them to craft whatever their vision is or whatever. And then what you're saying is that in that safety net, we're not quizzing what your motivation is to why. Mm -hmm. We're saying, well, that model looks interesting. Tell me, you know, you, you're directing it towards the external instead of making it a personal thing, right? So Absolutely. there's got to be a certain element, knowing people as I do, there's got to at least be 25% of the people would be like, yeah, I, I, bleh, right? I mean, to just throw their hands up like, yeah, this is, I don't know what you're doing here, but I don't want to play. Is that true? I mean, is there always it's, a resistance? It's not 25%. It's probably more like, in my experience, more like 5%. I think oh. I think you probably get more like eighty percent going. Oh wow, this is going to be great. Fifteen percent yeah, going. Right. Oh god, not another one of these things. <laughs> and and five percent going. I am really angry. And I've had people really angry at the beginning, just, just refusing to shake my yeah. hand, sitting down at the table. <laughs> what what's what's remarkable about it for me? And to be fair, I was quite grumpy when I was sitting on, on the original course. Within the first, because of the way the system's been developed, and it was really, it was developed by Lego when their strategy mm. process wasn't doing very well at the end of the 90s, the end of the last century. And the CEO wanted to get some more uh, imagination into the, the strategy process. And they developed this workshop and there was, there was a lot of um, Lego being used imaginatively in therapy and education. So the, the head of the education department was called in to, to create a workshop. Mm. And what developed out of that became the Lego serious play method. And mm. this guy spent 10 years at MIT developing out in a lot of detail to, to figure out, because he knew it was powerful, but there were going to be a lot of objections in the way, exactly the way you talked about. So there's, there's a skill building at the beginning that brings... And I have never had a workshop that hasn't brought everybody into it, uh, even the most extreme. Wow. As long as you can get people to start doing stuff with their, their hands. And it's really interesting. You, you don't say, in fact, there's a, there's a thing you say, don't have a meeting with yourself. Yeah. Get your hand on the bricks. Because what happens you're is right. you're creating new neural uh. connections, right? And so ideas appear in front of you as you're building stuff. It's quite magical in, the, in some ways. And usually the people who really don't want to be there are, mm. are scared. 
because they think they're not creative. They've never played with Lego before, so they've no idea what that's going to be like. Or they're worried that they're going to say something that they regret. There's a bit of the brain which does that for all of us. It stops us knowing what great ideas we've had. And actually using the bricks quietens that down and allows for insight to come up. And so as people do it, I had had one guy who literally, he he arrived, would not talk to me, sat down on the end of the table, arms folded, didn't want to know. By lunchtime, he was picking up the Lego pointing stick that I'd made and pointing at parts of the the group model that had been made because he thought the others were telling the story wrong and he was like right into it. So it's that ability to kind of create the safety that allows people to engage and to play in that way, not to play as in let's have fun, but actually I'm part of this. I belong. I can contribute. I understand where everybody else is coming from. I feel safe. What you've just set up there is it sounds more to me as a creational. It's a, it's really an artistic endeavor to me more than what i hear play is because when i hear play you know you're you're running around you're, you're playing tag whatever that's but this is more of an intentful creation of the psyche of the imagination and as you said about kind of getting rid of the chatter then that's a form of meditation also yeah absolutely absolutely and so funnily enough when i <laughs> When I'd done the the, the original uh, workshop and had this thing, which is like, I know I need to do something different. Uh, I went off and did two things that I thought could be nothing to do with what I'd end up doing and would be so far away from what I'd ever end up doing that whatever I did would be, wouldn't seem so weird. So one was comedy improv. <laughs> so I went off and trained in comedy improv and clowning. Uh, and the second thing was a mm. meditation course uh, with a Buddhist guy who was amazing. And both of them are exactly the same thing mm. as Lego Serious Play. They do they do very similar things around embodiment. So the idea of I- allowing ideas to surface, uh, I talked about the idea that there's, there's a part of your brain, which is called the anterior cingulate cortex, apparently, that filters out ideas before you know you've had them. In, in improv, there's a thing where you're on the side of the stage looking to join on the, the scene and you're looking for a chance to, to do that and thinking, what can, I, what can I say, what can I do? And your body will sometimes it'll jolt, jolt forwards. There's no idea. So if you're inexperienced, you stay off the screen. What makes improvisers look like they're doing magic when they come on the screen, on the stage, is they when they get that jolt, they walk on. And in the three seconds it takes to walk on stage, the idea has come from the back of the brain to the front of the brain it just it, it looks like they they've made it up like that and actually we've all made it up like that we just don't know we have because our brain filters it out and again so what the lego series play does in exactly the same way is it quietens down the bits that that stop that well, coming out um, and allow the ideas to come. that detail that you just explained is really the hamper or the the damper on trusting yourself and that's confidence yeah. as your example with the improv once you've done that multiple times it's not as scary so therefore you build yep. trust in your own capabilities and you're instead of worrying about oh i don't have anything oh you know what i i'll figure it out when i get there yep. this lego series is that opportunity where a team gets to practice and develop that quietness that allows a new range of problem solving. Yes. So it's interesting. There's two parts of it. Okay. So one is the is the the practice of being able to do things in a new way. And quite a lot of people, when they're doing Lego Serious Play workshops, they don't focus on that. What they focus on is the second bit, which is the what's the issue that we're working on today? Is it the team? Is it is it an innovation issue? Is it we've got a big problem with this project? How do we get past it? I think there's another bit of that, which I guess 
links back to the mindfulness thing and the meditation thing, which is meetings as a practice. I think you learn a lot when you're doing this. And if you can then bring that out into how do I make this part of what I do on an ongoing basis is really important. So I always try and have some kind of reflection around what are the kind of, because the kind of skills that in pretty much every leadership canon now around well, psychological safety, collaboration, creativity, servant leadership, active listening, diversity and inclusion in particular, all of those kind of things are wrapped up in the process. Just by going through that process, as an example with inclusion, you know, everybody is included to speak in whatever they want to, uh, to think in, the, in their own kind of culture. It's very, very powerful with um, people who live with autism. A lot of people coming up and saying, I've never been able to participate in a meeting before, but Mm. I can now. Mm. You know, it's depersonalized through the model, so it's kind of it feels it feels yeah. much safer. And the, and there's a kind of process that allows mm. that to happen. In the remote world, is there a 3D model that is a Lego interactive that you don't have to physically be together? Uh, not that I'm aware of, and not that I've used. But you can use Lego Serious Play online in a in a limited kind of way around individual model builds some people have tried to do a shared model but mm. for me that makes the lego the hero rather than the ideas it's too it's too hard you're getting somebody else to oh, rebuild your model and move yeah. it around and yeah. and you can get some good stuff out of that and you might be able to do things that are better than than you would with other kind of techniques i've used lego series play online for individual things like focus group work mm. or collaborative leadership kind of the, the more the practice aspects of it that we talked about but what you can do online and this is so i've developed uh, when covid struck last year there wasn't much demand for sitting around a table shoulder to shoulder passing bits of plastic between each other mm-hmm. and i developed a, a kind of set of principles which they underpin the lego series play method uh, which i've called the playful principles and they are kind of a, a bunch of things which are about how you run any meeting whether there's lego or not in a productive, inventive, engaging way so that people will want to come back to them. Because one of the things that I think I said at the beginning that I don't think people are well-trained to, to run meetings, even if we do think about uh, what, what are we there for, why are we doing it, why is it a meeting, not another thing, what we tend to not think about is how do we get the most out of the other people in the meeting. Yeah. And one of my favorites is this idea of 100% involvement. Like if, you've got, if you're inviting people to a meeting why isn't 100% involvement, 100% of people, 100% of the time involved? Should be a target. Might not always be there, but yeah. you know, how do you start? Giving everybody time to think, getting people, I call it thinking with your hands, but basically not thinking in your prefrontal cortex. How do you encourage people to do that? Listening with your eyes, not just your ears, so you're hearing more than the just the words and interpreting them the way you want to, but actually how do you do it, is mm-hmm. it through story is it how do you get people like really uh, engaged and a bunch of others that uh, use the same kind of thing and so because I, I actually i believe that the zoom fatigue is not the result of too many zoom meetings i think it's the result of bad zoom meetings no i i agree one of the tactics that i had recently developed that i'd seen in an organization that i i did some work with was that they do a check-in beginning of any meeting so there is an availability to recognize that people are engaged in 300 different things and you've snagged them for a one-hour meeting they may not be there physically mentally Mm -hmm. energetically they may be dealing with 13 other things so by doing a check-in gives a permission for somebody one to share a minute's worth of oh my my cat just ate the bird and I'm really distraught. 
it, it gives a level of personal space to be there and to allow that person to share something that you wouldn't know otherwise. It brings a calm and a peace to that person to be able to share that in a safe space and say, hey, this is what's going up for me. This may be a charge for me today. I may not be here 100%, but just know that, you know, that that's what I've got going on right now. And by doing that at the beginning of a meeting just gives a, a personal touch and actually an agency to the individual to have permission to share. It really 100%. builds a really cohesive team. Hundred percent, and I do I do that in every meeting and in in the training. It's the it's the first thing, particularly mm. in a remote meeting where we're all in different places. How do you get people into the same space? And actually having a meditative moment at the beginning to think about why you're there, sharing something emotional mm. um, as a tip for people. Mm -hmm. If you want to create immediate psychological safety the connecting question that you want at that beginning is tell us a story about oh, your name interesting yeah any story about your name what it means why you got it any anecdotes if it's a nickname and it's mm. personal but it's not intimate uh, there's always laughter and it's always interesting um and it just immediately i don't know why just gels a team gels a group for the meeting immediately makes such a big difference it brings in a different identity level mm. and from what you just said is that it brings in a personal identity level that is me takes it from the business aspect from the role i'm playing in this organization to hey this is yep. and i love that i've never heard that that's great well thanks for sharing that pro tip <laughs> what is your definition of knowledge management that's a very good question. My, I, I don't call myself a knowledge management professional. So the way I think about knowledge management is, uh, and where I'm, I guess I work that's relevant is in the area of tacit knowledge. So I think there is a, people know a huge amount more than they know they know, uh, and, and a vast amount more than they can access. Organizations that are full of people who know a vast amount of the stuff that they they don't know they know. So you have this tiny little, and I think of it as a uh, as an iceberg. So each person is a little iceberg and uh, you can see the little bit on top, but you can't see what's going on below. For me, the ability to manage what's going on below is, is what's really important because if a team or a group of people or a company is the sum of its parts or going to be greater than some of its parts, then all that stuff below the surface is not just a bunch of individual things that are uh, not seen, but also when those can interact together, they become exponentially more valuable. I think knowledge management is about releasing the potential of the people in an organization rather than, I don't know, when I was a consultant, we talked about uh, there was lots of knowledge management systems that where there were repositories of knowledge management. It was all about, well, how do you make it actionable? And it's so hard to do and, and in those days and i'm talking you know, a few years ago so there may well be better ways of, of doing it now but it was finding the right way to file things so that people could find them right. when they looked for them but the area i work in i think is more about there is this information that's sitting in people how do you mm. get those people together so they can bring it out and, and use it i like the iceberg concept because the, everything you're talking about is building a contextual connection between icebergs or between people that give them more opportunity of not sharing 
solely, but just mm. connecting in different ways versus the 10% of the iceberg that's visible as being the only plane of interaction. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, and the interesting thing in any team is not the individuals, it's the links between them. And, and when you're doing stuff uh, that's playful, mm -hmm. whether it's with Lego or whether it's using other exercises, but running a meeting playfully, it's all about managing the connections and the energy that flows between the, the nodes, not about the nodes themselves. Mm. And probably the good skill of a leader of a meeting is to be able to read the crowd. Let's end on that. Tell me about reading the crowd. Why is that so important? Um, well, that's a, that's a very good question. So the thing that it's brought to mind for me is uh, it was a, some workshops I was doing with the business school for one of their clients, team development uh, workshop. And towards the, it was two days. And towards the end of the first day, the, the business school colleague came up to me and he said, Richard, can I give you some advice? He said, I, I think you're not very present in the room. And I, I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, our clients kind of expect when, uh, when they come in, and he started talking about this idea of chalk and talk, that as a facilitator, you're supposed to write up stuff that they're supposed to know or supposed to learn, and then the talking happens. And, and I think for me, the, that's not what a facilitator needs to be doing. What a facilitator needs to be doing is creating the space where the uh, and obviously not in a training environment, but in a facilitation environment where you're creating the space for people to be able to to be safe, to share, and and to explore beyond their own individual boundaries, so that they bump into each other and create the magic which which they're supposed to to create. So I think the importance of reading the room is to be able to see where the barriers to that kind of safety are, um, and then to help melt it. Well, thank you, Richard. I think that is an armload of good advice. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Evan. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services a nonprofit tax-exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer-ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.